Chapter One of Running the Blockade by Thomas E. Taylor. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One How I Began Feeling in Liverpool Declaration of Blockade Its Immediate Result Effect on Trade in Liverpool The Theory of Blockades Attitude of the Federal States Seaboard of the Seceding States The Federal Navy Energy of the Northern States Additions to the Federal Fleet Position of the Southerners at Sea Want of Building Yards and Material Commerce Destroyers The Merrimack and the Monitor The Alabama and her Consorts Attitude of Great Britain A Royal Proclamation Preparation for Blockade Running Amateurish Efforts Daring Attempts The Trent Affair Launched as a blockade runner. At the outbreak of the great American Civil War, I was serving as assistant to a firm of Liverpool merchants trading chiefly with India and the United States. There was little in my life at the outset to foretell the full taste of danger, excitement, and venture which it was my fortune so early to enjoy. I had nothing to hope for beyond the usual life of office routine and a dim chance of a partnership abroad in the future. Young as I was, my interest in the coming struggle was deeply aroused. From the position I occupied, its significance was brought home to me with the absorbing interest of a factor in my career. My own fortunes and those of my nearest friends seemed at their outset to be bound up in a piece of history that promised to leave its mark upon the world. Nowhere, indeed, out of America was the succession of the southern states more keenly watched or canvassed than in Liverpool offices and upon the exchange of the city, which American trade had begotten and nursed. And the particular aspect of the impending war was most calculated to fill the imagination of youngsters like myself, who were awakening with the dreams of boyhood to the excitements of real life. It will be remembered that as soon as war was seen to be inevitable, President Lincoln sanctioned the heroic measure of attempting to choke secession by closing every orifice through which supplies could be drawn, and in the middle of April, 1861, rebellion was turned into civil war by his declaring the whole of the southern ports in a state of blockade. One of the immediate results of this act of President Lincoln was the prompt acknowledgment of the South as belligerents by England and France. Yet the Federal States persisted in maintaining that the Confederates were rebels, and that whosoever ventured to recognize them as belligerents must be regarded as friends of rebels and no friends of the North. They ignored the fact that their interference with neutral trade by this declaration of blockade was a virtual concession of belligerency to the South. A declaration of blockade presupposes a state of war and not mere rebellion and the claim by the Federals of a right to seize neutral vessels attempting to break a blockade was one which can be exercised only by a belligerent, exercised by anyone else, it is mere piracy. The effect of the news on the Liverpool Exchange it is needless to describe. By the scratch of a foreign pen a blow that was without precedent was struck in the chief trade of the port. So prodigious, uh, indeed, was this first act of war, that for some time there was a doubt whether the neutral powers would recognize it. 
Only five years before, the powers assembled at Paris to wind up the Russian war had by solemn agreement declared as the final and universal law of nations that blockades to be binding must be effective, that is to say that all the ports declared to be blockaded must be actually invested, or at least so closely watched by a cruising squadron that no ship can attempt to leave or enter without manifest danger of capture. Now, as the seaboard of the seceding states extended from the river Potomac in Virginia, above Cape Hatteras, down to the Rio Grande, the southern frontier of Texas, the coastline which the federal government had to watch effectively was some three thousand miles in length. It was studded, moreover, at wide intervals with ten or a dozen ports of first-rate importance. The total fleet of the United States when the war broke out consisted of less than one hundred and fifty vessels, of which fully one-third were quite unserviceable. About forty had crews, the rest were out of commission and of these ten or eleven of the best were lying at the Norfolk Navy Yard and fell into the hands of the Confederates. From these figures it will be seen, therefore, how impossible it was at first to maintain the blockade which the Northerners had declared, and how ineffectual it must be, seeing the length of coastline to be watched. With their usual energy, however, the Northerners set to work to increase their fleet, Within very few weeks over 150 vessels had been purchased and equipped for sea, and more than 50 ironclads and gunboats laid down and rapidly pushed forward toward completion. In addition to these, a large number of river craft were requisitioned and protected by bulletproof iron for service on the rivers. But even with these vigorous measures, the blockade was anything but effective during the first 18 months or two years of the war. But the Northerners, steadily and by almost superhuman efforts, increased their fleet, and at the beginning of 1865 had so far succeeded that they possessed a fleet of nearly 700 vessels, of which some 150 were employed upon the blockade of Wilmington and Charleston alone, and patrolling their adjacent waters. It can easily be imagined, therefore, that attempting to get in and out of those ports in the latter months of 1864, and the early ones of 1865, was a very different business from the condition of affairs which existed earlier in the war. When the above ports fell into the hands of the northerners, the blockade, considering the nature of the coastline and the types of vessels employed as blockaders and runners, was to all intents and purposes as effective as could be expected, for the blockading fleet consisted of almost every description of craft, from the old-fashioned sixty-gun frigate to the modern ironsides and monitors, supplemented by dozens of merchant steamers converted into gunboats, not very formidable perhaps as warships, but still dangerous to blockade-runners, especially when fast. The southerners, on the other hand, were practically without any navy, with the exception of a few old wooden vessels which they seized at Norfolk Navy Yard at the outbreak of the war, and as they were almost entirely devoid of engineering works, material, or skilled labor, they could do but little to compete with the North upon the ocean. Their naval efforts were chiefly in the direction of supplying themselves from outside sources with commerce destroyers, such as the Alabama, Florida, Shenandoah, Georgia, etc., though from the wretched and scanty material which they possessed they succeeded in building two or three formidable ironclads. 
but their engines and armament were defective and their crews unskilled. Notwithstanding these drawbacks, however, the Merrimack, one of the old wooden steamers which they had seized at Norfolk, and which they had converted into an ironclad by covering the hull with railway iron, fought a gallant fight in Hampton Roads with the celebrated Monitor, after having destroyed on the previous day the Congress and Cumberland, two large northern warships. Another ironclad was also improvised by the southerners at Mobile. She was called the Tennessee, and was altogether a more formidable craft than the Merrimack, both as regards armament and size, but like the Merrimack was terribly defective in engine power. When Farragut attacked Mobile she did considerable damage to his fleet, and for a time engaged it single-handedly, but at last was forced to haul down her flag. The Confederates also built another small ironclad at Wilmington on the same lines as the Merrimack and Tennessee, but unfortunately she ran aground on her passage down the river in order to attack the blockaders outside and became a total wreck. In addition to the ships I have mentioned, they possessed the Sumter, Rappahannock, Tallahassee, steamers, and several sailing vessels. But with these vessels they had no chance against their powerful rivals in actual warfare, although the Alabama and her consorts swept the mercantile navy of the United States from the ocean. Seeing how inadequate the Federal Navy was at the time when the blockade was declared, there was certainly a strong case for treating President Lincoln's prohibition as a mere paper blockade. This, however, the British government did not choose to do. At this time we were particularly anxious, in view of the coming international exhibition, to stand well with all men and to be entangled in no foreign complications. Within a fortnight, uh, therefore, on the receipt of the news, there came out a royal proclamation enjoining on all loyal subjects of the British crown an attitude of strict neutrality, and solemnly admonishing them under pain of Her Majesty's displeasure to respect the Federal blockade. Needless to say, the proclamation awakened no respect whatever for the blockade. The lecture in the latter part of it was received in the spirit in which it was issued, as a piece of mere international courtesy, and those of Her Majesty's loyal subjects who were most affected by the new situation at once took steps to make the best of it. With due respect to the pain of Her Majesty's displeasure, we all knew that to run a foreign blockade could never be an offence against the laws of the realm, nor were we to be persuaded that any number of successful or unsuccessful attempts to enter the proclaimed ports could ever constitute a breach of neutrality. Firm after firm, with an entirely clear conscience, set about endeavouring to recoup itself for the loss of legitimate trade by the high profits to be made out of successful evasions of the Federal cruisers, and in Liverpool was awakened a spirit the like of which had not been known since the palmy days of the slave trade. It was a spirit of adventurous commerce savouring of the good old days of the French wars, when a lad might any day be called from the office to take his place on the deck of a privateer, and when daring spirits were always ready to steal away from a convoy and run the risk of capture or the chance of getting the cream of the market. The risks a blockade-runner had to face were much the same, for as no government pretends to interfere with its citizens if they choose at their peril to trade in the face of a blockade, so no protection or redress is given them if they are caught red-handed, 
After official notification of blockade, any neutral vessel attempting to leave or enter a blockaded port forfeits its neutrality and places itself in the position of a hostile belligerent. The blockading force is entitled to treat such a ship in all respects as an enemy, and to use any means recognized in civilized warfare to drive off, capture, or destroy her. A crew so captured may be treated as prisoners of war, and their vessel carried into the captor's port, where, after condemnation by an admiralty court, she becomes his prize. Nor is any resistance to capture permitted, and a single blow or shot in his own defence turns the blockade-runner into a pirate. Such was the exciting prospect our seamen and supercargoes had before them as they sailed for the southern ports. At first, of course, the risk was not thought very great. The Confederate ports were so many and far between, and the Federal Navy so weak and unorganized, that vessels proceeded very much as if there were no blockade at all. The consequence was that as early as June 1861, barely two months after the declaration of the blockade, several English vessels had been seized and condemned. Almost every week after that brought news of fresh captures. On the other hand, so many ships succeeded in getting through the widely scattered cruisers that the business still went on in the old clumsy way. We had neither of us learnt our trade then. The Federal captains, in hopes of fat prizes, cruised without order and chased wide, leaving ports open for newcomers, while our best idea of minimizing risks was to send out old unseaworthy slugs which we could well afford to lose. During the whole of the first year of the war it was in this amateurish way that things went on. A pretty regular tale of captures came in, and among the reports the mails brought home began to be whispered stories of daring attempts and hairbreadth escapes that set many a youngster kicking very impatiently under his desk. There came stories, too, of exasperated or ill-conditioned Federal captains who had behaved with unwarrantable bluster or tyranny to captured crews and these began to awaken in mercantile circles a partisan leaning toward the South, which certainly did not exist at the beginning of the war. Some of us, it must be confessed, were growing oblivious of our duty as loyal subjects, and of the solemn admonitions of the proclamation of neutrality, and for not a few the profit of making a successful run began to be seasoned with the pleasure of doing a good turn to the South. It is all bygone now. Runners can laugh over the rough knocks they sometimes got, and blockaders at the weary dance they were led. But in those days the ill-feeling was very strong, and in the midst of all the fermenting irritation dropped the grating surprise of the Trent affair. Captain Wilkes, a Federal naval officer, commanding the West India Station and engaged in blockade duties, took upon himself with more zeal than law to board the Trent, a British mail steamer, on the high seas, and seize from its deck two Confederate diplomatic agents who were passengers from Havana, accredited respectively to the French and the British governments. There is no doubt that the English nation was prepared to make any sacrifice to resent this outrage, and feeling ran very deep while we waited for the answer to our demands for redress. It cannot be denied that people on the other side made themselves a little ridiculous and irritating over our perfectly reasonable request for the surrender of the prisoners. 
Captain Wilkes was the hero of the hour, and blustering exultation over England, the tune of the street. But in the White House heads were cooler, and in due course full reparation was made. Still, the spoiled child of diplomacy was not made to apologize. She barely expressed regret, and her omission of this international courtesy, combined with the extravagances of her press, confirmed in many Englishmen their inchoate partisanship for the South. Such was the state of things when, one day early in the year 1862, one of the partners in the house where I was serving called me into his room. After telling me how he and a few friends had purchased a steamer to have a try at the blockade, he asked me if I would care to go as supercargo. The answer was not doubtful. It was a stroke of luck far better than I had any right to expect at my age, for I was but twenty-one, and, needless to say, I embraced my fortune with alacrity. "'By all means,' said I, "'if I am not too young.' My chief was good enough to say that he thought I was not too young, and so I was fairly launched in my career as a blockade runner. End of chapter 1